This is Meta, a podcast about podcasts, and I'm Peter Wells. Meta is the show where I'll interview some of my favourite podcasters in Australia and around the world to hear what motivates them and to hear some of those great behind-the-scenes stories. It's a chance for you to find your next favourite podcast and an excuse for me to chat to some of those voices that have been in my earbuds for the last couple of years. For the first episode, I'm chatting with Dr. Norman Swan and Tegan Taylor of the ABC's Coronacast. For those who have never listened, Coronacast is such a fascinating show. Considering its subject matter, it could have been a lot darker. Instead, Tegan and Norman bring just the facts that you need to know each day and present them in such a warm and engaging way that it really has become a daily listen to me. It's also nice and short, so it doesn't overwhelm you with facts. It gives you just the information you need. Tegan and Norman bring that same warmth to the conversation I had. It's actually two conversations. We first chatted in early June, when things were looking very positive for Australia. We caught up again at the start of August, when Melbourne was in the middle of a second lockdown, to discuss what went wrong and where to go from here. I really hope you like this conversation as much as I enjoyed having it. And we'll take a listen after the break. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I've got to say, I was reluctant to listen to Coronacast when I first heard about it. It just didn't sound like something I needed in my life. There was so much information about the coronavirus and COVID-19. I was reading far too much. I was watching far too much. And I thought, this is not something I need to lower my anxiety. But then I found whenever I was having a conversation with friends or family, and we'd be talking about, you know, should we be wearing masks or is it safe to send our kids to school? People just kept saying, well, you know, Norman says this or Norman said that last week. And and I kept thinking, who the hell is Norman? And <laughs> so that's how I found your show. What is it like to be so much a part of the the conversation that's happening out in Australia? Well, it's 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 a bit unfair that Norman says, given that it's um, a team effort. And, um, you know, so Tegan has been underrepresented in terms of the reporting on the, the thing. I'll say that to, to begin with. I think we've both been, I mean, not even speak for ourselves, and it's just been bewildering. We didn't have a clue what would happen. And it, was, it was not the idea of any of the three of us. It was actually the idea of um, a woman called Tanya Nolan, who runs audio, news, basically radio news and, current, news and current affairs. And she had the sense that people were adrift and wanted information and they weren't getting it from other sources. And that that was the very simple brief for Corona class. And that's what Tegan and I did. And essentially, I think that's been, the, I don't know, Tegan, what, what do you think? I mean, that's that's essential, that's the core of its popularity is that we answer people's questions to the best of our ability. Yeah, I think um, Tanya and Will hit on such a winning formula with it because I know for myself, I felt so overwhelmed at the beginning of the, of the pandemic of just sort of like feeling like you had to be across. And obviously, like as a health reporter, I did have to be across the whole thing. But as a person as well, you're kind of like, how do I take care of my kids? What am I meant to do? Like, do I go to work? Don't I? Like, all, all that uncertainty at the beginning. And I know that the people that I've spoken to have said, like, 
only having to give it 10 minutes a day was a really good way of getting up to speed without sort of getting swept up into the vortex of mm. it. Mm. And I, yeah, I think, I, I mean, that's a real, like, that's a real kind of weight of responsibility on us as well to sort of feel like people are listening to us. So we, we take that really seriously. Tegan, there is such a reassuring tone to Corona Cast. When I've chatted <laughs> to friends, they've said that it's one of those shows that really helps lower the anxiety. It, was that something you were going for? It really could have gone either way. Hey, like you don't really know, you don't want to add to anxiety. You obviously want to inform people. I'm really pleased that we've managed to hit that um, balance for most people. Like, did you guys work together previously? Have you known each? I mean, obviously the ABC feels like it's a small place from the outside. So, what, so the background here is that um, until about, well, correct me on the time, but probably four or five years ago, the science unit was a tiny little unit with Robin Williams and me and Lynn Malcolm. And we were sort of petrified that when we died, the science broadcasting would disappear. And, um, and then we expanded and a guy called Joel Werner joined us and uh, Jonathan Webb came in as the editor of science from London, an Australian who'd been working for the BBC with a strong science background. And the board of the ABC agreed on a paper produced by Fiona Stanley that essentially science broadcasting was underdone at the ABC. We needed a succession plan and we expanded enormously. And now we're one of the largest science units in the, you know, in the public, sector, public sector broadcasting internationally. And Tegan was one of the recruits, and Tegan works in Brisbane. So we're now in we're in Brisbane, Melbourne, Sydney, across and on and Canberra. That's right, across online radio, television. Uh, so we brought television into the fold um, with Catalyst. Yeah, so we work in the same unit, but we don't work face to face. Never work face to face, which no. is part part of the magic of. Um, <laughs> Coronacasts where we never see each other. <laughs> <laughs> well, we never, we're never at risk of infecting each other, which is the primary thing, right? No, it's kind of cool. Like I've, I think we met a few years ago when I first started Norman, but really apart from a couple of collaborations on the Health Report, which is Norman's very, very good weekly show that's been running for a very, very long time, um, we really had had a lot of opportunities to work together before now. Norman, uh, you've mentioned a couple of times on the show that the messaging around what we should be doing, how we should be acting is just as important in a pandemic like this, the way that this particular virus spreads, uh, as is stockpiling PPE and other medical equipment. If you were going to rate a politician in, an Austra- in Australia purely on messaging, no other factor, who do you think uh, has had the best messaging, the clearest messaging of all of our politicians? I actually would rate all the state premiers equally. I think they've all done an amazing job and stepped to the fore. And I think that the states and territories are the ones who've really got this under control. Uh, They're the ones who carry the can. They're the ones who've got to deliver the services. They're the ones, if there's a disaster, they've got to pick up the pieces. They've really stepped up to the mark. And I think it would be unfair to pick out one or the other because if you live in Queensland or Western Australia or wherever, regardless of who you voted for, I think most people would agree that the state premiers have done an amazing job. And they've done what the textbook said they should have done. They've, they've stood up. They've told the truth. They've not created panic, um, but they've told the truth. And 
not yeah, they're not sugar-coated it. And, 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 and the community has learned to trust them. And I think most health ministers um, at the state and territory level, the same. And um, you know, in, in, in many ways, the Commonwealth has a coordinating orchestral role here. But it's the states that do stuff. And I think they're much closer to it. And they've done a great job. Yeah, yeah, I think that's absolutely fair and very political of you just to say. <laughs> well, no, I, ge- I genuinely, mean, I genuinely mean it. I mean, I, we've all got a different style. Mm. So the easy thing to say is, is that it's Dan Andrews because mm. he's been out there and you're know, giving the tough messages. But it's it's true of Stephen Marshall. It's true of Gladys Berejiklian. True of Palaszczuk. Mm. They've all they've all done it in their own way. They've all got different styles and different personalities. And they've done the same job and they've done it incredibly well. Um, I, I completely agree. I think the the premiers have done an outstanding job. Uh, I just think that maybe uh, some of the messaging from Canberra has not been as polished. I think that where we got into controversy in the early days of Coronacast is that we kind of walked into a vacuum, which Tegan's just talked about which is we, we started doing this. And after a little while, both of us just started to realize the impact it was having. And the feedback that we got from them was, well, we can trust you, but we can't trust government, which is a very troubling kind of mm-hmm. thing because that was not our intent at all. Um, but I think that the problem at the Commonwealth level was there was a lot of mixed messaging going on. They were trying to not panic people. Um, I called it like your know, pandemic Valium. You know, this is if you actually look at the early rhetoric, it was about this is not a serious disease. It's 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 mild in most people. Don't panic about it. And I'm going to the footy. Well, and the, well, we'll come to that in a minute. And the first thing that happens when a politician says don't panic is that everybody panics. Um, <laughs> and so th- that was kind of the vacuum. And I, th- and I think that the messaging at Commonwealth level was messy and contradictory and they hadn't really worked out the politics and the econ- economy and what have you. And there was a lot going on. And the worst week was the week where it was the same week as there was a basketball match in Western Australia with 14,000 people. There was the footy that the Prime Minister said three times he was proud to be going to. And there was the Grand Prix with a quarter of a million people. At the same time, as the, everybody was saying, we got to socially distance and work from home. And people said, mm-hmm. what, what's going on? Mm-hmm. And that kind of, I think that created a, a, a bit of a crisis. And the very next week, um, the Commonwealth got its act together. And I think it's been very stable and really following the model that the states have set up. Yeah, no, I think you're right. I I think that the messaging from Canberra has definitely improved, but there was a couple of weeks there. I'm Victorian, and so there was a couple of weeks there where the messaging coming from Dan Andrews, my premier, was very different to the messaging coming from Canberra, uh, especially around schools, for instance. And and as a parent, that was really worrying and uh, Mm. very confusing. The school school issue was very poorly communicated and and confusing. And the Commonwealth, at least the Prime Minister, was very determined that the school should not close. And he was getting advice accordingly that, you know, children don't spread this disease. So they certainly don't spread it as much as adults, and they are lower risk. But that actually wasn't the reason why you closed schools. The reason you closed, the main reason to close schools in this pandemic was you cannot lockdown without with schools being open. If you've got you know millions of people throughout Australia in their cars circulating, getting kids to school and back, 
um, that is an, that is anathema to lockdown. So part of the infrastructure closed closure of infrastructure to allow parents and actually in many ways force parents to stay at home, but schools had to shut. And that was not well communicated. And if people understood that, they would say, yeah, I'll get that, you know, because that stops it. And Dan Andrews actually was one of the few premiers to really clearly articulate that we've just got to take a million people off the streets um, twice a day um, for schools. And he, he made that clear. And I think a lot of others didn't. So people were confused because the science says children don't spread this disease as much as other age groups. True, but that's not the main reason you close the schools. So I was looking at some of the reactions to Coronacast over the weekend, and, and it was quite fascinating because some of the earlier reactions, uh, I saw people saying, well, well that, that show is so fear-mongering. It's, it's, you know, they, they, they said that there were going to be 70,000 infections across Australia, and that never happened. <laughs> But you said that before we took any action, uh, we didn't, you know, before we locked down, before social distancing became the norm. Uh, is it kind of frustrating to, to hear those, to hear that kind of reaction? The, this is it. The beauty of, it, of this is that you never know. You never know whether you overreacted or not, but wouldn't, isn't this a better position to be in than to be in the position of, say, the United States where they go, oh, if we'd only locked down a week earlier, we would have saved this many lives. How different do you think the tone of Coronacast would be if you were recording in America? Oh, Lord. It's, I mean, we have, we have had the benefit in Australia of being able to have interesting conversations that are mostly hypothetical or theoretical. You know, does the coronavirus spread by farts? Like, ha, 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 that kind of thing. I think if we were in the States, it would be a much more sober tone because the situation over there is so much more sobering which is really sad. So, yeah. I've found that I can't really pay attention to the US situation anymore. Uh, It's just too depressing. Uh, Do you guys feel that or or are you kind of compelled to continue to uh, research it for for the show? Oh, gosh. I mean, I think you inevitably reach saturation point with something like this because it's just so massive and there are so many facets to this pandemic beyond just the health side of things. I remember speaking to a virologist really early in the pandemic and she was saying that the first two hours of every workday for her was going through the stuff that had been put up on the um, the preprint servers overnight. Like each night, two hours worth of her work the following morning was just reading what was up there. And that's just the stuff on, that's just the research papers. And then you've got the political situation and the international situation and all of the different fallout that's coming from that. Me personally, as like an individual human being who's living through this, was homeschooling my kids at the same time, couldn't visit my family. Like all, you know, you're you're a participant as well as kind of an observer. I just basically had to kind of pick a level of informedness and uh, and kind of modify that day by day. So yeah, to answer your question, I haven't been watching as closely on the states as um as maybe i would have in a different time because yeah like you say it's actually really overwhelming yeah i mean i watch it pretty closely but we don't cover it much on coronacast because the, we, we try to stick to the knitting which is answering people's questions giving them insight and moving with the audience through the phases of the pandemic so we're now in a very nice place to be which is a low level of the virus in australia and if, if we were to focus too much on parts of the world where it's still really bad and likely to get worse, 
And if we were to do all that, we would actually disconnect from where the audience is. So where our audience is, is how do we stay at this state? How do we stay safe? When can we come out? What are the things that are safe to do at this point? Should we wear masks? Whereas um, if you go back to the questions that we were answering right at the beginning, they were very um, anxious, uh, uh, understandably anxious. Everybody was anxious. It was, it was uncertainty and they wanted knowledge in a, a state of, where there wasn't a lot of secure knowledge to be had. And if we, but I'm repeating myself now, but if we were to really focus on Brazil or America and Corona cats, then that's not where the head of our uh, heads of Australians is at. The heads of Australians is at how do we not go back to lockdown? Mm. But at the same time, how can we go back to normal living in the economy? What's safe to do? What's not? And the sort of questions you were asking a minute ago, Peter, or which is, you know, was it all worth it? Type questions. It's yeah. interesting, I find, one of the things that I found really interesting about this pandemic is that in Australia, we're really used to looking to the US and the UK as for analogies or for kind of data. You kind of go, well, we don't have the data for that in Australia, but we know in the US that's X, Y, Z. And just how wildly different the Australian landscape is to the US and the UK now. And we're really kind of running our, our own race over here. Yeah, it's really fascinating, isn't it? I mean, I, I think for years, Australians kind of see themselves as so similar. Uh, to the US and the UK. And then when you look at the way all of our countries have reacted to this crisis, uh, you can see we really are very, very different people. People, I think, behaved in an exemplary fashion and wanted to do the right thing. And, yeah, there was, you know, know, subgroups of people who just wanted to be out there doing silly stuff, but they were in the minority. I completely agree with you, Peter. We're, we're we're just a very different nation, and, it's, and that's what's shown up. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think um, I think Australians like to think of ourselves as being larrikins and indiv- you know independent individuals, but I think this pandemic has shown that we're actually rule followers, which has really worked in our favour. Absolutely, absolutely. Although I've got to say, sometimes when I go to the shop, and I'm wondering if this is the same feeling that you have sometimes still is that, you know, I go to the shop and I see 80% of people doing the right thing, you know, stepping out of each other's way. I've seen masks really kind of, a lot of people are wearing masks now. Um, and yet there's still, you know, the, the odd people who are just like reaching in front of you and bumping into you and stuff like that. <laughs> like, uh, how, how do you feel right now? Are people taking it, the, the, the threat of a second wave as seriously as you would like them to? It feels to me that we're so lucky to be at such low levels here in Australia, um, which I guess the the risk now is so much lower than it was a month or so ago when there were a lot more people around in Australia who had it. But also um, one thing that sort of kind of reassured me or at least kind of gave me parameters for it was some modelling that was released um, a few months ago from the University of Sydney, basically showing that if 90% of people do the right thing, then we're we're kind of okay. If 80% of people do the right thing, we're okay-ish. And if 70% of people do the right thing, it was basically really difficult to tell the difference between the the unchecked pandemic curve and the other. So as long as most people, as long as like eight or nine out of 10 people are doing the right thing, then that's kind of okay, I reckon. And that's exactly the research I was going to quote. (laughs) And, And what I find is because I've been on television 
you know, probably a bit more than Tegan, is the um, is, is people come right up to me in my face you know, <laughs> to ask me, you know, almost spitting at me how the bars is going and looking at me askance as I as I reverse back very quickly, and then the really keen ones keep coming with me. It's like a tracking camera, you know, they're sort of coming with me. So it's, you know, um, that's going to be tense. Haven't you been listening to anything I've said? That's right. <laughs> Um, all right, I've got one question that is purely uh, a question more for the show. Like, uh, if I if I were a caller calling in, but a bird's angrier. They seem angrier, and I'm wondering if it's like like birds. Yeah, yeah. In my, I'll tell I'm, you why birds are angrier. Mm. Yeah, keep going. Well, I was birds are angrier because we've taken the, the spotlight away from influenza, which they are the natural reservoir for, and mm. now we're talking about COVID, which they don't have anything to do with, and they're just myth. <laughs> See, I was wondering if it was just like less people walking around means less food on the ground means um, they're all a bit hungry and, and that's why they're all a bit angry. But No, no I, I agree with Tegan. I think the birds have read, read the journals and the birds I've spoken to agree. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, I can't argue with science, you know. <laughs> um, finally, uh, Norman, I just have to ask, um, have you seen the thirst posts on Twitter and do you know what that means? <laughs> have I seen the what? The thirst post. You're a thirst. You're a thirst trap, Norman. What are we talking about? <laughs> <laughs> They're so, talking so about the, you being the nation's daddy, Norman. Yes, yeah, so talking about the, the fan fiction. Yeah, if you if you do oh, a yes. search oh, on sorry. your name on oh, Twitter. Yeah, that that yes, no, I, no, I, I have, I have, with great embarrassment. Yeah. <laughs> the, the thought of women masturbating to my voice has not <laughs> been something that I would ever have thought would happen in my broadcasting career. <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> I didn't expect that answer. All right. Um, I probably won't pop that in print, to be honest. I mean, if you've seen that, the, the erotic fiction story, is that what you've seen? Uh, no, I haven't seen that. I, I, I have seen um, just, just, just a general Twitter search. Um, there's a lot of talk about how clear your skin is, uh, how beautiful your voice is, how... Um, oh, I see. All right. All right. So, okay. So, um, all right. So I'll, I need to explain my call. My <laughs> yes, please is, do. Um, I, I, I ignore all that stuff. Um, in fact, I've seen very little of it. But what did, what did pop up a few weeks ago was um, a blog, a video blog on erotic fiction. And the, they were interviewing this woman who'd written an erotic story um, about listening to the radio and masturbating to my voice. And that's what I'm talking about. That was, that was where I got totally weirded out. <laughs> something, something flattening the curve, something, something. I, I don't know what I was saying. I didn't get too close to it. <laughs> Okay, fair enough, fair enough. Um, and yeah, all right. Well, it, sorry, if, I, so, so, I thought it, was, it became clear. I had to clarify that little remark there. That's okay. That's okay. Look, like I said, the, look, this has been really informative for me, and possibly a little bit too informative for you out there in podcast listener land. But look, we're just going to take another quick break, and when we get back, it'll be the August conversation I had with Tegan and Norman about the second wave that hit Melbourne, as well as all the other new information we have about the coronavirus and how it spreads. 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Uh, so we're pretty much just going to cover the same ground we did last time. Maybe maybe less masturbation, but um, yeah, we'll just go through the, <laughs> the, the same kind of points. Okay, so we chatted a couple of weeks ago uh, for the podcast column that I write for the paper. Um, I wanted to get you back on uh, for the podcast itself because a lot has changed in the last few weeks since we chatted. Uh, you know, there, there was a lot of, Tegan, you were very um, optimistic about uh, how well Australia had done and uh, and that we really we, we really felt like we were, we were on the path to eradication of the virus. I live in Melbourne. That is not the case anymore. <laughs> um, so, Tegan, what has happened in those these last few weeks? Yeah, I mean, I tend to be probably overly optimistic at the best of times uh, or the worst of times, whichever way you want to cut it. But, yeah, I, I think when we last spoke, it was really feeling like we'd kind of gotten under control in Australia. We were sort of wondering whether the podcast itself was going to come to a bit of a natural end. And then, I mean, before the end of June, it all really took off again in Melbourne and it's been really kind of sobering. And I think a real wake-up call for the whole country that we aren't out of the woods and will never perhaps truly be until we have a, a, a proper treatment or vaccine for COVID-19. And so, Norman, um, make me feel better as as a Melbourneian. Um, was it anything that I did wrong, or is it just the nature? Yeah, well, of this- I, yeah. Look, my my theory is that Melbourneans stop listening to Coronacast, and now <laughs> and now that they're listening to it in their millions, um, problem solved. <laughs> well, <laughs> it was that simple. <laughs> completely problem solved. You know, just don't worry about it. Just tune in every morning. Coronacast tends to be a little bit ahead of what the the government guidelines tend to be. So, you know, back when, back during the first wave, Coronacast was really calling for, you know, a proper lockdown, a serious lockdown uh, that took a couple of days for for that to happen, for schools to close, all of those kind of things. Uh, The same thing seems to have happened this time around where, uh, you know, Coronacast was calling for mandatory masks uh, before they became mandatory in in Melbourne. What do you um, put that down to, Norman? Well, it's not anything magical. It's just following the evidence. I mean, this the Coronacast comes out of two parts of the ABC, important parts of the ABC, ABC News and ABC Science. And uh, Tegan and I belong to the science unit, and we've got a lifelong careers, lifelong careers in following evidence. So there's nothing special or um, magical about our thinking. You simply look at the evidence, and the evidence was clear about masks. It was clear about masks many months ago. It's clear about aerosols, uh, things that we've been talking about for a while, and resisted by, particularly the Commonwealth, more than states actually, um, you know, p- partly because they're getting a very narrow base of expert advice. But all we were doing was following the evidence, and I, I think that's probably quite irritating for some people that um, we're doing that. And if you follow the evidence and understand how pandemics spread, um, th- these are the sorts of calls that y- you can make. And the, um, I think I said to you then, but I'll say it again now, is that there's not a single textbook of public health, not one, that will have to be rewritten 
as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic. It's behaved in a textbook fashion. And um, it's just a pity some people haven't been reading the textbooks at times. We're just, we're following the evidence. We're talking to the experts. We're looking at the papers that, that are coming through and just trying to present that almost as neutrally as possible. And so that there's not necessarily a spin or any kind of fear-mongering. It's just giving people the information that they need to be able to navigate this weird world we're living in. And for those who know me, um, I've got two afflictions in life, being born Scottish and Jewish, both which give you a cloud of misery over your head. And every, so everybody who knows me thinks that the, the secret sauce for um, the Chronicast is Tegan, actually, who um, gives it that touch. <laughs> and and you, you've been talking quite a bit about how optimistic you've been, especially with the, the Melbourne numbers um, starting to decline. Yeah, go on, Norman, give yourself a break. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, last week we, at the time of recording this, we're, what is it, Tuesday, August um, 11th, and last week we took a punt, or I took a punt and said it would turn the corner Monday of this week. And it does seem to be doing that so far, although regional rural Victoria looks a bit of a worry. Yeah, so so let's, let's look outside of Melbourne. Uh, obviously, that has been the focus for the last couple of weeks, but um, we are also being the, the most... Um, uh, cautious uh, in our response. So I think that those numbers are going to trend down. What about the rest of the country? Do you think that Melbourne is going to be, uh, like you said, the wake-up call um, that the rest of the country needs to to understand that this is uh, this can just get away from you? I'm, I'm sceptical about our ability to, honestly, to, to learn from our lessons. We had the New March uh, aged care home problem in New South Wales, and now we've got a hundred odd aged care facilities from the private sector with outbreaks in Victoria. And we know that the Commonwealth was warned about COVID-19 and what it should do back in February. Didn't do it. Um, what does it take to learn? And I'm not, I'm not sure that other states are taking action in aged care facilities, for example. So I, I actually am not sure. And now you're seeing, as we speak, a problem with spread in regional Victoria. And probably the right thing to do is to go to lock stage four this week in regional Victoria to just clamp on it because we've seen what can happen when it spins out of control. But I suspect we won't. So I'm I'm a bit um, sceptical that we learn from our lessons. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I'm, I'm in Queensland and it's really hard to keep the faith. Like, it's really hard to keep up the, the social distancing, the hand hygiene, the um, just... In all of the interactions, I just see people relaxing and, and all it takes is a case or two to come over the border that isn't picked up straight away and it could take off here and we're out of the habit. Yeah, yeah. I, I In a weird way, I kind of feel a little bit safer in Melbourne just because so many people are taking it so seriously. Mm, that's um, interesting. Do, do you think um, maybe the, the fact that, say, with aged care as an example, that aged care is a federally run um, system within the state borders, so that that creates this kind of overlap. I, I feel that some of, so some of where we have fallen down across the nation is um, when there are kind of too many cooks. People don't know who's responsible for certain areas, or um, you know, certain areas aren't communicating as well as they could. I'll tell you what the problem is, and it's not a reflection on the politics here or whichever, you know, whether it's Liberal or Labour in power. It's a, it's a constitutional issue, the way we're constructed in Australia. Effectively, the Commonwealth government doesn't run anything. Well, it runs the Defence Force. 
um, and a couple of other things. But it actually doesn't administratively know how to run services. You've got clever people who know about policy and how to divert money to you know, and create leverage and what have you. But it's the states that run stuff. And so it's an unusual and, – and, and they don't really run aged care homes. They're supposed to regulate them. But they – and again, this is not necessarily party political because I suspect whichever party being in power, we'd have this problem in aged care – is that the Commonwealth is just not good at running stuff. It's it's not part of what they do. They they set policy and they take in money and spread it out and try to get leverage for whatever policies of the day they want to put into place. But I think uh, that's the core problem here is that uh, states should be running stuff more than they do. And yes, sometimes they make mistakes, like in hotel quarantine, which is rather disastrous, but they're better at it, I suspect, than the Commonwealth. So let's let's talk about states then, and and again let's we'll keep the politics to one side because I I kind of feel that most people are, are pretty happy with, with with what they're seeing from their premiers. But what do you think? Um, oh well, you... that's not true, oh? Peter. The the, the 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 popularity ratings of premiers are consistently lower than that of the Commonwealth. Really? Um, and yes, so the, 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 you think they're popular, but when they do the study, when they do the surveys. They're not that popular because they're the ones having to give the bad news. Mm, yeah. um, and that's, a, that's another reflection of it is that the Commonwealth, again, this is not part of the political, Commonwealth can rise above it. And um, it's like being a grandparent, you hand back the baby. Um, <laughs> and therefore, it's relatively easy for um, a prime minister of the moment in a crisis to look great mm. and a state premier to look crap because they're the ones who've got to front up every day to talk about the services that they run. I've got to ask then, um, because in Melbourne, uh, at least, uh, the, there is a lot of love for, um, Dan and, uh, Brett Sutton in particular. The love for Brett, Brett Sutton is kind of starting to, um, challenge you, Norman. Um, I'm, I'm really jealous of Brett. He's just really conquered the, um, hearts of Victoria. And, you know, I'm just back in the background now. Yeah, yeah, you had your day in the sun, mate. But, uh, look, he's he's just so soothing. He really is. If, if he released yeah. a podcast, I would subscribe. And, you, and, he is, and, he, you know, and he is gorgeous, you know, he's correct. Yeah, yeah, and, and stubble really works for him. Um, if, if anyone from his team is listening, keep him in stubble. But um, oh, what I was going to say... Oh, well, I, do, I, do, I, do think, I do think that he's trying to mean me when he does a stubble. I have to say that. You know. <laughs> he's modelling himself on you. Definitely. I think so. I think he's just, yeah. The, 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 how, idol okay, let, let's put that aside. H- how is Dan being, uh, Dan Andrews being, uh, viewed outside of Victoria? Because, um, you know, I, I see, obviously Twitter is not real life, but the, the, it's bizarre to look at Twitter and see, um, the, the level of anger that certain media organizations have for Dan compared to what the, the community feeling at least feels in my area. I can only speak to the to my own circle, but uh, I was sort of thinking he was doing a great job under pressure and sort of felt like pretty sorry for him, like, oh, gosh, he couldn't pay me enough to be a premier at the moment, right? But, like, not that anyone's offering. But then I was speaking to some some other people the other day and the the level of anger was really surprising. I, I think some bad stuff has happened in that state and... People want to apportion blame, rightly or wrongly. Tegan, um, uh, so I know firsthand how hard it is to work from home with children in the house. How on earth are you ma- managing to make a daily podcast as a parent? 
the girls, my, I've got two kids, two girls, and uh, they get the death stare when I'm going in. They know, it, <laughs> don't be quiet, be silent. They have to choose their silent activity. It's much easier now that they're back in the classroom. When we were homeschooling during the, the first lockdown, the nationwide one, um, my little girl has to write a journal for school each day. She's in year one. And um, one day she wrote, my mum does Corona cast. We have to stay quiet for half an hour. It is boring. And that was her <laughs> journal entry for the day. <laughs> and there was and there was one day where uh, we don't often do it on FaceTime where we see each other, but, you know, could see it. And then um, Tegan's about to start and this little girl comes into the background saying, <laughs> Oh, she's on Corona cast, Corona and then walks out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's adorable. No, they're good. <laughs> I don't know how people with toddlers do it. Um, I don't know how people with teenagers do it. I think I'm pretty lucky that my kids are the age that they are. I got a one and a four year old. Oh wow. <laughs> <laughs> That's been to you, my friend. Yeah, it's been tricky. Uh, I, I mean, thank God, uh, second lockdown, the weather's been nice, so we can actually at least walk around the park and look at the um, the the playgrounds we're not allowed to go on. But um, yeah, it's it's a lot nicer than uh, the <laughs> Melbourne winter lockdown that was the first one. Uh, Tegan, when you're, um, uh, do you think that you'll be able to maintain this kind of positive? Uh, vibe to the show. Um, I mean, uh, where, where do you see the show going? How long do you think the show is going to, to last? That is like the million dollar question, hey. And as ter- in terms of the positive vibe, I mean, the, what can I say? Australia, Australians are going to want to do the best job that they can. And so that's great. And we want to see them do that. I feel like the pace of science that's being done around COVID-19 is staggering. And while there might not be, uh, the WHO was warning last week that there might not be a silver bullet, which was pretty hard to hear, but that doesn't mean that there won't be many non-silver bullets that together can uh, can make a difference on the pandemic. So different medications and treatments and um, public health interventions. So I don't know. I'm not sure how long the, po- the podcast will last for. I'm not sure how long Norman and I keep going before we just, I don't know, keel over in our uh, you know, home recording studios. But for now, I think I think we're going strong. Can you just explain that um, many silver bullets uh, theory? Yeah. So one of the things that um, the head of the WHO last week said that there may never be a silver bullet for coronavirus. So that is like a vaccine that works as effectively as we would hope it would the way other vaccines have worked in the past. But there's so much science going into treatments. So like medicines for if you get sick, there, of course, are vaccines in development that perhaps will not be as, you know, might not be the one thing that works but are part of the, the fight. There's there's engineers and other researchers who are looking at how to develop like buildings and, and offices that are more protective in terms of ventilation to, to stop the spread of viruses in that way. And there's also what we know about public health interventions and social distancing and messaging and a cultural shift in Australia perhaps as well where people are not as touchy-feely as we've been in the past or or mask wearing is more normalised. I can see a situation where a lot of different, there's there's a many-pronged approach and that all together that ends up helping us to, um, to avoid the toll that this virus could take if we didn't take action. Can I ask, um, in Brisbane and Sydney, what what is the percentage of mask wearing out in public transport and, and places like that? It's getting much more common in Sydney, but still not pre- prevalent. I would say it's 
at a guess in my suburb, 20% of people wearing masks when we go out to the supermarket. Um, I actually did what I said, what I thought to myself I wouldn't do on Saturday. I went to the movies wearing a mask and there was almost nobody in the cinema and maybe about one in five were wearing a mask, including me and my partner. And that, um, so it's getting more common, but not as prevalent as it needs to be. Oh, sorry. So you would like to see all Australians wearing a mask? I, I, I don't think it makes a lot of sense in um, Western Australia, South Australia, Tasmania, Northern Territory at the moment. Um, I think they've got to be ready for it and they've got to have stockpiles in there. I, uh, it probably is in the southeast corner of Queensland at the moment, just while things are uncertain with new cases coming in. And it certainly makes sense in New South Wales, even with a small number of cases, because you just don't know where that virus is. And it's a very small economic price to pay for an extra piece of insurance. Yeah, I've been surprised that the numbers of mask wearing here in Brisbane is pretty low, but I have seen more that, you know, more than ever before, especially older people I can see at the supermarkets <coughs> wearing masks. I think that there's there's a cultural shift that would really benefit us if if mask wearing is just normalised, that you're not seen as being a weirdo or people looking at you sideways if you're wearing a mask. Because COVID's not the only thing they protect you against. Like, there's lots of reasons why people might want to choose to do that going forward. Yeah, I mean, I, I was wearing a mask in March, um, which <laughs> I was getting a lot of strange looks for. But but it was just one of those things that, like, when I saw what was happening in New York, it just for me, it, it, it made sense to me that if you're in a highly um, urban, dense environment, wear a mask. And if you think it weakens your immune system, just remember that Japanese are the longest-lived people in the world, so they don't <laughs> do too badly by their mask wearing. Well, that's a good segue because I was going to ask, what do you do when, um, say, someone emails uh, into Coronacast about Bill Gates or 5G or uh, any of the other strange theories that are bubbling around about uh, Coronacast? How, how do you, oh, sorry, <laughs> oh, Corona, not Coronacast. Do you ever get those emails? Do you respond to them? Um, it's called the waste paper bin. <laughs> I mean, essentially, you have, I think, a responsibility not to give oxygen to mad stuff and make an, an editorial decision there. Um, I mean, if somebody was to write into the science show with Robin saying he should do a program about how the earth is flat, is he going to do it? No. Am I going to do a health report on how smoking is actually good for you? No. Um, the balance is there's no such thing as balance in science. Um, there's a debate sometimes over evidence, but there's no such thing as balance. If there's evidence, that's where you that's where you travel to, and that's the that's the problem with the climate change debate. Is the evidence is clear, and yet we still have a debate. Um, and there is no point in having climate deniers on when the evidence shows clearly that there is a problem. Having said that, I feel like there is something in the fact that there do seem to be so many conspiracy theories floating around with, well, with everything, but with COVID specifically, and that you're never going to change the mind of the people who are absolute diehard. Yeah, this is, this is, I genuinely believe this. But my concern is sometimes for the people who are in the middle and not sure what to think. And, and so sometimes I feel like there is room to just neutrally lay the facts on the table and just go, hey, here you go, here's some, here's some information that might be of use without ridiculing yeah. someone for it. That's right. I, 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 the worst thing you can do is make fun of, mm. of people with those ideas because they're earnest and concerned and they thought it through. Um, they've just 
thought it through, unfortunately, with bad evidence and and wrong concepts. But um, you know, there it's it's not um, you you don't go for the person, you go for the idea. Mm, totally. So, Norman, uh, your son, Jonathan Swan, uh, is also in the media. I noticed he was interviewing Donald Trump uh, a couple of weeks ago. So if you had a chance to replace your son, Jonathan, what would you have asked uh, Mr. Trump about his response to the coronavirus? Um, I, I would hesitate to say that I could better my son. I'd just <laughs> uh, I'd leave that to him. Uh, I, think, I thought he did a pretty good job in COVID-19 and holding the... <laughs> leader of the free world to account. Um, so I was very proud of him. My question to you, Norman, is are you prouder of him for his journalistic integrity or the fact that he is now a meme, which I think oh, I shared? Definitely <laughs> the meme. I mean, the meme wins Memes, out memes, every time. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, and, and the other thing, I mean, it's just incredible what's happened to him in the course of a week. He was pretty well known in the United States, but largely people who were political junkies who just yeah. love politics. But now, so John, there's this meme of um, the interview where they overdubbed the parrot sketch from Monty Python. Uh, you know, <laughs> this, is a, you know this parrot's dead, you know, it's it's dead, blah, 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 dead. Norwegian blue parrot or something like that. And with John Cleese and I think it's Graham Chapman, or no, it was Michael Palin. Anyway, um, so, so it was very funny meme with this parrot sketch. If you haven't seen it, just Google parrot sketch uh, Trump interview. Anyway, John Cleese retweeted it uh, <laughs> yesterday. <laughs> uh, that is fame. That is fame. <laughs> yeah, I, I, the the thing I really appreciate about the interview is, um, you know, Australians are always seen as so kind of uh, happy-go-lucky and you, you, you never really see a, um, a, a frustrated, angry Australian um, on international media. So I, I like the fact that we we got that that, that little um, you know, glimpse of ourselves um, on, on international media. Well, he, wasn't, that was, that was he, wasn't, he wasn't angry. He was more quizzical. Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> coming back at him. He did it very well. <laughs> um, well, if, uh, looking into the future, is there uh, anything that you would like to say to the audience on, on kind of uh, where you think um, our response is lacking, where you think we could be we, we could be doing better. And, and also, I don't know, a uh, reward you would give to, to Australians for how, how they've done so far. My sort of message is that the virus is, it's, in, it's inanimate. It's not, it's not alive. It doesn't have thoughts and feelings or anything like that. But in the way it operates, it wants us to let our guards down. And as soon as we, when we do, that's its opportunity to spread. And so even though it feels like we've been doing this for a long time, we have to keep doing it as long as it's still circulating. Um, and so that's sort of my first thing. And the reward is that if we can, I mean, it's a it's a stretch goal, but if we can eliminate spread in Australia, the reward is, is self-apparent. We get to go out again. We get to mix again. And um, as long as we can keep doing it until we've got some sort of broader solution, then, um, then that then that reward is also self apparent. We get to go back to normal life one day, hopefully. She says optimistically. <laughs> Norman, um, look, we, do, we need to um, just give this into perspective. Is that despite all the problems that Victoria is going through, Victoria has managed to bend the curve in stage three, and it will bend the curve down effectively in stage four. Um, and as a country, we are well ahead of most other nations, apart from just a few others, such as 
South Korea, Taiwan, and so on. So we're doing pretty well, but that's not a cause for complacency. And all I'll say is that I think that Tegan and I both feel a sense of responsibility that it's a marathon and we're mm-hmm. at the beginning of the marathon. And this, the fact is those magic bullets in terms of an effective vaccine or effective treatment may well be some time off. And that means this is here and it is going to be here forever, by the way. Um, it will just be that something will control it. So it's a marathon. And we feel a responsibility to go on the journey with Australians on that marathon with a daily podcast and providing answers and sucker and um, maybe a few brick bats along the way. But um, And we'll be with you for that journey. And um, um, we're happy to take a holiday when the rest of Australia can take a holiday. Well, that's good to hear because as as much as I want uh, to be able to leave my house, um, you you do make me feel happy every morning. So thank you so much for your service uh, to the nation. Pleasure, Peter. Oh, pleasure. Thanks, Peter, and all the best with it. Thank you. See ya. My thanks again to Tegan Taylor and Dr. Norman Swan, who were just so generous with their time. If you like what you heard, please tell a friend and rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. My guest next week is Baratunde Thurston. He is a comedian and writer from the States. Uh, We talked about the Black Lives Matter movement. We talked about the upcoming election and a whole bunch of other stuff. Here's a quick snippet from that discussion. So you've got all the equipment in the world to suppress the right to peaceable assembly, mm-hmm. but you have nothing for the frontline health workers or the involuntary frontline workers in the grocery stores and the bus drivers and the sewage workers and the delivery people who are barely keeping us all together, them and whoever created Zoom. That's all <laughs> we have. That's all we have. And I don't know, There must somebody must have put some money because Zoom has stayed up this whole time, mm-hmm. and I'm starting to get very suspicious. I'm starting, <laughs> I've never used technology this much without it breaking, and there are billions of us using it. So what did they know, and when did they know it? That's my question. Thanks to James Smith for the post-production of this episode, Lauren Watson for the design of the artwork, and the team over at Acast in Sydney for much guidance and assistance in getting this off the ground. I'll speak to you next week. Bye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.